everyone, and welcome to New Way, the podcast that explores the connections between people, their communities, and the ways that context shapes faith. I'm your host, Sarah Hayden. Franciscan priest and contemplative activist, Father Richard Rohr, has said that perhaps the most fruitful way to practice our faith is through the examination of our reaction to the present moment. That is, our warm embrace of the present is the best practice of love. Said another way on the same topic, today's guest, Rob Douglas, writes in his new book, Discipleship is not an event or a program. It's a process. It's a way of being human. Faithfulness, can it be marked and measured? Do our collective practices as a church, things like community worship or Bible study, transform us and form us into a more faithful and brave people who live into God's future together? If you don't want to start something from nothing, which a lot of people don't want to do, then find a good partner. That's another way to think about innovation is, like if you don't have the resources to start something from scratch, well, who's already doing the kind of work that's consistent with your values and your talents and go join with someone who's already doing great work. That's good innovation thinking right there. And it's like the lower hanging fruit on the innovation continuum. Today's episode is part two of my conversation with Rob Douglas, the founding pastor of Lightshine Church in Thousand Oaks, California. He's one of the nicest people you'll ever meet and author of the new book, The Missional Disciple Making Handbook. In this episode, we talk about Rob's new book, the church's call to innovations of mercy, and Rob's advice for people taking on something new. And what does a former handbell choir member have in common with someone who spent his teenage years surfing? It's Christ, obviously, and our mutual affection for the innovation Jesus calls us to. Let's jump right in. Well, I love that you've written this book. It, to me, is one of the most practical and pointed ways that I've found personally to sit and examine and be in conversation with others. It's sparked a few conversations that I've had personally about, okay, what would it actually look like to reflect on my level of bravery when it comes to the gospel, Mm -hmm. my willingness to be changed by other people, my interest in being moved by the Holy Spirit, and Mm -hmm. how has that changed my last month or my day or you know, as I said, I was baptized at two months old. How has it changed over my lifetime of discipleship? Yeah. Because it's kind of a scary thing to take stock of, but you've written this book, which gives us a series of questions to do just that, to sit down and say, if we want to grow, we can be honest about where we are and what we'd like to beef up so to speak beef. <laughs> i like the beef up part that was good <laughs> you take the beef up part but you you talk about innovation specifically and what it that it does something for discipleship and it could be scary to try a new thing for sure because a lot of things can go wrong and if we're truly trying something new we can't predict how it's going to play out oh yeah what the results will be right i mean boy are there stories in scripture about that right but you encourage folks to take on that risk of innovation with a yeah. particular direction. Right. Will you talk a little bit about that and maybe why you wanted to yeah. offer this resource, where it came from? When we think about innovation in the church, we often don't think about the church as the most innovative institution, right? We think about like Silicon Valley and tech and whatever is yeah. all these great innovators. 
And so sometimes when we talk about innovation in the church, people do get pretty anxious and they just know the church changes so slowly and they get pretty scared of the word innovation, but just kind of making innovation easy. And I was actually, this is hilarious. I was with a guy yesterday who's super smart business guy and a Christian man. And we were talking about innovation and he's like, oh yeah, my church is totally innovative. You know, the bell choir did a contemporary <laughs> worship song in church last week and he was kidding. Okay. So he's super funny. Yeah. He was joking. And he's like, well, what would you say to, if somebody said that to you? And I was like, oh, at first I would start by saying, wonderful, that is innovation. And so innovation really is just taking an idea and putting that idea into practice or action. But what the bell choir fun. <laughs> <laughs> You're talking to a former bell choir member. Oh, I actually went sweet. to handbell camp. Oh, that's in awesome. School, you know, so I didn't know that they had awesome. such a thing. So you might have been surfing, but I was at handbell yeah. camp. <laughs> I totally was surfing and doing some other things. <laughs> <laughs> but what I think that misses is the innovation piece that somehow connects outside of the church. So it's a wonderful example of a small innovation that actually is an innovation and is helpful and is helping you take a step into trying and practicing something new and then evaluating that. Hey, how did the bell choir song go? Hey, people loved it or it sparked great conversation, whatever. But it doesn't move us outward into the community. So what we're trying to do with this book is how do the things that we try move us outward to connect better with our community or folks that do not identify with our church or do not identify as Christian. And so, you know, Jesus told us to go and our discipleship kind of pathways have been extremely individualistic and programmatic in some cases colonial, but this is the way we've done it. And, but I think what's happening is we're just frustrated. And actually the same guy who gave me the bell choir Thing is a man who deeply loves the church, Big C, and he deeply loves his church. But he was like so frustrated that he actually told me like, I'm just like giving up. Mm. <laughs> He's like, I still love my church. Yes. I'm still going to go. But it just the level of frustration over the lack of progress and the lack of living on mission has just gotten to the point for him where he's like thrown up his hands and he's like given up. And I think a lot of people feel that way because what we've been doing or what we were taught to do, and like I could be cynical here and I probably shouldn't, but the ways that we've told people to do it, like I'll give you an example. I went to a, um, a discipleship webinar one time because I was trying to learn everything I could. And the leader um, was a really high level very well-known person in the area of discipleship. And that person said, hey, just grab someone from your church and meet with them. And I was like, wait, I don't get it. Like, how about go grab someone not from your church mm. and go sit yes. down and meet with them? Mm. And, but the thing is, is this is what we were taught. Like, hey, just get in a triad or whatever. Just read this book or like the book I wrote is not that. I mean, it is a little post-industrial in that regard, in that it's not going to tell you <laughs> this is three easy steps to disciple making for 1999 or whatever. Like, it's not that. It is trying to get people to discuss, like you said, like what's working or really what's not been working for us. Why are we so frustrated? 
And how do we say yes to new ideas that get us moving outward and connecting better into our local communities? And I thought you brought up a really good point that a lot of the things that we try, they're not going to work. And so we've got to have a new definition. Like what is failure? Like church planners, we're kind of used to failure. I say that positively, to be honest, not Mm -hmm. as a negative, but we're used to trying things that don't work. And then we just try something else. And so that's what we're encouraging people to do is to, what do we learn from our failures and our mistakes? It's probably our best teacher. Yes. (laughs) You know, know, theologically speaking, the God that we attempt to follow is inherently innovative. God became flesh and the incarnation happened, right? Those of us who are Christian have some stock in that, that God desired to experience human life, go to new places, say different things. And what Christians and people of faith who had heard these messages of newness before were dismayed to find out that it included people beyond the temple, beyond the house church, that it was intended in many ways and rewritten and resung and relocated for the purpose of connecting and being a part of what God was already doing Mm. in people's lives who did not self-identify as followers of Jesus Mm. or the way. So we should take heart that this is in our DNA and this is who we are. We can go and do these things. And it says to the world, this might be a translation from the message, God saying, give me all of you. Mm. I don't want so much of your time, so much of your Sunday morning so much of your talents and money, and so much of your work. I want you, yeah. all of you. Yeah. Give me the whole outfit, hand it over to me, <laughs> and I will make of you a new self. Give me yourself, and in exchange, I will give you myself. My heart will become your heart. Mm. And it's not in this allocation of one hour on a Sunday morning that we receive that new heart. It right. really is in doing what you did in our own particular ways of saying, okay, here's where I happen to be on Tuesday mornings. Hmm. This is what's happening on Thursday right. evenings. Right. How do I take a risk and show up as who I am Yeah. in the way of Jesus? Yeah. It doesn't have to mean handing out tracks. Yeah, I think that's really wonderful. And a shift for an individual is some prayerful discernment about how we enter those spaces, especially those spaces that we're like regulars in, you know, because those are opportunities And I used to be, I was really terrible at that for a long time. And it was something that I really had to work on personally, because like, I'll give you an example. I used to go to this coffee shop forever. And as an introvert, like that was my place where I could go be by myself super early in the morning, drink a really good cup of coffee, and then I could read and write. Yeah. And yeah, I knew a lot of people there because I went every day and so did they, but I didn't know them. And then... I had a shift at some point years ago where I started, and I don't know why this happened. I just was growing as a person and said, you know, I need to be more mindful of this space that I'm like in every single day and where I see all these people. And I just started kind of prayerfully entering the space like, God, just help me pay attention and help me get out of my own head while I'm drinking coffee and be more open to what you're doing in these people's lives. And the strangest thing happened. 
people started asking to meet with me. One guy was going through a divorce and asked for my help because he knew I was a pastor. Mm. Another guy was having trouble with his, you know, teenager and was like, hey, I know you work with kids. Like, would you be willing to ever talk with me? And that being open to the things that God was doing in the lives of these neighbors of mine that I knew but didn't really know was really transformative for me too, hopefully for them. And, you know, those people, none of them like, oh, I really want to go to your church. You know, (laughs) that didn't happen, Hmm. but other really wonderful things did happen. And it took me making that kind of shift to be able to discern better what God was up to in that space that I found myself in every day. So I'm, I'm more mindful of that kind of thing when I enter regular spaces that I'm in all the time and get to connect with people. I'm trying to be listening better for those kind of opportunities. My fellow handbell choir appreciator, <laughs> your friend from California who talks about like the big C, the big church. Yeah. I love that. I've been thinking more and more about that the more I do this work and the more I, quote, grow as a person. I love that phrase and the way you said it. I think it's essential that we who belong to particular churches have a love, develop a love for the Big C Church. Mm -hmm. It is a balm to me for the frustrations and a reorientation for the frustrations or challenges that individual churches feel and experience in the ways we get stuck Hmm. because there's always a church out there there's always someone out there within the faith who is willing and found a way to be courageous and self-offering and sometimes it's people i don't want to be the first people to do that because they might belong to the church (laughs) that i wish would disappear off the face of the earth and i don't want anyone to go to Uh, the spirit works in mysterious ways but i wager the breach will be more closely repaired by my humility and willingness Mm. to appreciate what is faithful about that expression and might result in them seeing something that is faithful in my expression incomplete expression of the gospel You told a story that I've thought about since you told it a couple weeks ago uh, about Christians' response during another plague. Mm. We have our own pandemic experience. Right, right. You told me of the ways in which the Big C Church understood its calling in a very particular time that they could have never predicted. Right. And the way it helped other people it just expanded everyone's imagination yeah. about not only the church that was possible, but that the world was possible. Right. This was a story that was formative to our planting team. So it was something I used. I actually think I used it on the very first meeting that I ever had with a discerning team to plant a church. And I use it a little bit today in a different context to illustrate that innovation is not always what we think it is. It doesn't have to be high tech This is an example of a story that's not high tech at all. It's very low tech, (laughs) low tech to no tech. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And it's fitting for a time going through our contemporary time of being in a pandemic. And it was, you know, set in the time of the plague. And it was just this awful time where there was no explanation for what was happening. And people were dying so rapidly that they, you know, were just taking the dead bodies and throwing them out into the streets. And even people that had shown signs of early symptoms of the plague were just being tossed out 
dead or alive, just thrown out into the streets. And then it was such a scary time that, you know, the response was, you got to flee. We got to get out of the city. And so everyone was just abandoning, you know, family, friends, neighbors to save their lives. And I, I get it. Yeah. And the innovation, which was so meaningful to our team, was that Christians were the ones that made a different decision. And they said, what if we stayed? What if we stayed and what if we took care of our family members who are sick? Uh, what if we took care of our neighbors who are sick? And then two important things happen. One, I think it they say it reduced the mortality rate by like a third. So they were saving people's lives physically, which was pretty cool. But the thing that I loved about this story or this innovation, right, is just taking an idea and putting it into practice. When everyone else was fleeing, Christians said, no, we're going to stay. And what happened in the end was that their neighbors, their non-Christian neighbors, started calling Christians miracle workers. And every time I say it, it like gives me, physically gives me goosebumps, right? I mean, just think about that statement for a moment. Their non-Christian neighbors were looking at what they had done and saying, these people are miracle workers. Hmm. And that transformed the larger community's view of the church. That is something that will transform and change people. Um, looking at a church today where I don't think that's what they're saying, right? I think yeah. they're saying some other things about the church that are not so flattering of us. And frankly, I do think that we deserve some of the of the mm -hmm. criticism. But today, what if we were a people that decided to stay, right? And stay and care for people with compassion and mercy and be a part of their lives instead of fleeing. If we were a people that stayed today, what might that do to people's perception of the church today? It could change people. So I like that story, mm -hmm. the innovation of mercy, because what innovation does is it's like the domino effect, right? Innovation leads to more innovation. And when we're innovative in one thing, it often opens up doors to innovation in other areas. I love that story too. And it gives me pride and I guess an unworthy sort of pride that I feel on behalf of <laughs> right. Christians many years ago who did this. Right. But when we sit in confusion and our session meetings and boards and wonder, what is it that we could be about? What should our plan be? What's our vision for 2025? What's our strategic plan that we put on a shelf? There are plenty of things all around us right. that demand attention right. and healing and support and solidarity there, you know, pick one and run with it. Yeah. Who are we fleeing from in our communities today? If you just want to hold that yeah. one for a moment and might we find a way to stay uh, with those folks instead of flee away and welcome them in. I pray that all of us have some experience in our lifetime where we've glimpsed that in a Christian community mm. where the gathered time represents a group of people who have spent their week healing in the innovation of mercy. Mm. And how would that influence that Sunday morning or Tuesday night or, you know, once a quarter right. when those people have the facility to gather mm. to say, come in, you know, you've been hard at work, take a rest, let's pray. Mm. Let's hear the stories you have to tell. Let's pray for the people and envision their lives free of suffering, uplifted, Oh, you brought this person with you? We've been praying for you. You know, we, we just that sense of yeah. 
larger community and the way, I mean, how much more poignancy that brings to the gathering when we unpack right. examples of faithfulness. Yeah. You reminded me of a, I'm going to highlight one of your uh, thousand and one churches, the open table in Kansas city. Mm, yeah. So I was there in the early days of their opening with them and Nick Pickrell had sent me out to dinner somewhere and I told him, yeah, I want to walk because I want to learn the city. And so as I was returning, I had this like three mile walk pretty late at night and I was walking back to my hotel and I came across a man on the sidewalk and he was in just an awful state. And I made an attempt to talk to him and try to be helpful. And it was, he was in such a place that that wasn't possible. It was just this heartbreaking moment. And I went to sleep and didn't think anything of it. And then the next evening, people were gathering for worship at the open table and they line up for dinner and there's these boxes of pizza. And the man in front of me in line at the open table was the same man that I had seen on the streets the night before. And actually, this like almost makes me cry again telling it because... That's what I did. I sat in his line to get pizza crying because of the beauty that I had seen from this church, welcoming in all kinds of different people. The people that others are fleeing from, the open table was welcoming them in. And that's a good example of, I think, what you're talking about and something that deeply impacted me. It was a moment then, and even trying to tell the story right now, I almost was unable to get through it. But this is one of the most beautiful pictures of the church I've seen. And it's one of our 1001 New Worshiping communities. <laughs> it's amazing. Rob, what advice do you have for churches attempting to do something new? Oh, yes. Good. I'm just going to like throw out a couple things and not elaborate too much, but just some like food for thought for people that really want to innovate or want to see their churches innovate. And the first one to me is one of the most important is innovation is best done collaboratively and not by yourself. That can be frustrating. So like for people that want to innovate, like find some people to do this with. And so that's what the idea with this book was to sure individuals can read it. But what we really want to see is like a group of people in this work together. So I think that's one of the first and most important things. Just a few others, I would say like develop and use some sort of a practical theology cycle or like an innovation cycle. Like how do you do this? What is a process? So I do outline one in the book, but other people have their own and you can make one up. But I think that kind of thing, using something like that would be helpful. Mm, like a reflective tool. Yeah, like mine is listen, discern, experiment, evaluate, pivot or persevere, and then share transformative stories, right? So that's the one that like I personally, we use that and other people have slightly different versions of that, but something that helps a group of people walk through a process of like, well, what do we do? Because the starting point's the hardest, like, okay, we want to innovate, but what do we do? And everyone just looks at each other. Right. <laughs> yeah, most of those cycles begin, I'm thinking of the one that liberation theologians have used in base communities in Latin America for decades, ver pensar actuar, to see, think about it, and do it. Yeah. <laughs> and it's cyclical, so you yeah. then you see what happens when you do it, and you yeah, discern, right. and you do it. It's a simple process, but yeah, I it love comes it. with seeing and hearing first. Right. 
And so I yeah. think, you know, for a group of people just to make sure you know, they have something like that, that can help them, you know, work some sort of innovation process. The next thing is, is for the people that get overwhelmed by experimentation or find this to be really anxiety producing. The other thing we need to think about is what are we going to give up in order to take on something new? And so like evaluating the current ministries of our churches and saying like, are they doing what they're supposed to do? And if there's something that really we should stop doing because it's not achieving its purposes um, and it's not helping us with the mission of the church, we really need to consider dropping some things before we take new things on. So that's just like a little piece of advice. And the next thing would be in the same vein for the anxiety producing, oh, this is crazy. I'm scared to try new things is just to start small and make subtle shifts to the things we're doing. So like when I use the swamp reservoir canal Thurman metaphor, like how could we shift something that we're already doing to being more canal-like? Or how could we shift something that we're doing that was ministry two or four? And how can we shift that to be better ministry with folks in our community? That would be a small shift of innovation that doesn't require like starting something from nothing. And if you don't want to start something from nothing, which a lot of people don't want to do, then find a good partner. So that's another way to think about innovation is like, if you don't have the resources to start something from scratch, well, who's already doing the kind of work that's consistent with your values and your talents and things like that. And go join with someone who's already doing great work. That's good innovation thinking right there. And it's like the lower hanging fruit on the innovation continuum, right? I love that example. Yeah. There are so many worthy organizations oh, that yeah. can do amazing work with more money, more volunteers, yeah. more support. Yeah. And then just two last things. And this one is going to be the one that's going to be the most counterintuitive, but I'm just going to say it because good innovators, and this is something I've learned really, not something that I knew. I would have said the opposite of this before learning this, but great innovators all say the same thing. They say you need to generate quantity experiments, not quality. And that is very counterintuitive. Okay. But the reason for that is you want to generate as many ideas as you can and whittle those maybe down to something manageable that you want to try. But the goal is to try to come up with as many ideas to like address an issue or a problem as you can, and then work that practical theology cycle into choosing something to try. But getting a lot of ideas on the table is really, really important. And that's often like a counterintuitive step for people in innovation is just like, go for it (laughs) and come up with as many creative ideas as you can. And then maybe the last one is, you know, like learning from our mistakes. And so it goes to that one, right? Not all the things that we try are going to be successful. And what do we learn from those things? We've got to have processes of evaluation to help us figure out what we've learned so that we can grow. And the next time we try an experiment, we shift it, we tweak it, we make it a little bit better the next time. So I think those are the, there could be a million things here, but I just wanted to pick a couple easy ones that weren't too completely overwhelming and ridiculous. That's a lot there. (laughs) And I love that last one because one of the things we've seen in this type of work is that it's okay for projects and ideas and even communities to have life cycles. That doesn't mean they're not worthwhile. That doesn't mean they weren't impactful. We can celebrate what's happened or even say to a church we're gonna try this until december oh yeah 
And then we're going to see what happens oh, and yes. evaluate. And we might keep going. And there's just a lot of freedom in that. Yes. Perfect. Absolutely. In the work of innovation you've participated in, what have you gained and what have you let go of? I'm letting, I'm learning to let go. One, that I have the answers to solve <laughs> the church's problems or our church's problems. Yeah. One of the biggest things I'm learning to let go of is that I, I don't have. So taking on good processes to help a group of people move forward in mission is something that I'm learning to take on and then letting go of some of those more industrial models of, hey, just do these three things and your church will triple in size and look like the mega church down the street. Those things really don't interest me anymore. And I've, but they used to. And so that's a learning. So those are things I've definitely walked away from and let go of. And the other thing I'm say I, I'm learning and taking on is I'm trying to learn to listen better to my neighbors and to folks outside the church and try to be more inclusive of those voices having weight and impact in our church community setting. That's a direction that like we're trying to move as a church. And so that's something like we're taking on. I don't know if I answered your question, but I did try. <laughs> <laughs> Those are beautiful and thoughtful responses, matched only by your integrity in doing the things that you talk about, Rob. Truly, you are someone who many, many of us look up to and give thanks for. You just writing this book is a gift into the hands of the church. And I really look forward and have great excitement about the things we'll be able to do because we're letting go of that fear and we're opening our hands to God's spirit. Yeah. But thank you for this conversation. And thank you again and again for the way in which you live your faith and leadership. Thank you. I do appreciate it. And I feel the same way, Sarah. You're a great leader. This has been wonderful to be with you. It's really an honor, a privilege for me to have been on this with you. So thank you so much for the invitation. Marthame, you're the man. Yeah, I, I do appreciate it. Thanks, Rob. Friends, you can check out Rob's excellent book, The Missional Disciple-Making Handbook, at cyclicalpublishing.com. When you order, you get a PDF and a hard copy. The book is packed with thoughtful questions and anecdotes. Thanks to our longtime partner, Cyclical Inc., for making this resource available broadly. Coming your way soon, new episodes from season eight of New Way, as well as our famous annual Christmas episode. We're exploring contemplation, silence, neighborliness, the importance of trying new things, and more with our awesome lineup of guests. Whether you're listening along with a group or prefer to keep these amazing episodes all to yourself and to just let the magic flow through you as you live your life, you can subscribe at Spotify, Stitcher, Google, Apple Podcasts, online at newchurchnewway.org or wherever you do the podcast listening. Thank you for listening to New Way. Our producer is the fabulous Martha M. Sanders. I'm your host, Sarah Hayden. Catch you next time.